This is J.D. Fascinetti, and you're listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News has undertaken an initiative to understand and share the complicated issues related to access to medications so patients can join us in advocating for a better system. In that tangle, we find insurance companies, orphan drug manufacturers, specialty pharmacies, pharmacy benefit managers, also known as PBMs, prescribers, and others that add to the cost of medications and complicate access. The issues get even murkier when considering patients on Medicare, Medicaid, their pricing models, and copay requirements. We are committed to understanding the issues from all angles, how these issues affect the care of pituitary patients, and the advocacy effort needed to make it better, to lower the pocket costs and, more significantly, simplify access. Additionally, we aim to understand patients' and physicians' experiences with prescription drugs and cost challenges. This is our first series of podcasts and articles on the subject. Joining me today for this important discussion are Lisa Nelson, who is the head of corporate affairs for Amrit Pharma, and Jill Sisko, president of the Acromegaly Community, a leading advocacy organization for people with that tough pituitary disease. Lisa has done a ton of work in public policy issues related to access to medications and rare diseases, and Jill works daily with patients in her community to help in making sure patients are getting the treatment they need. I am very happy they both agreed to join me. We caught up with Lisa and Jill last week, so here's our chat. So uh, Lisa and Jill, it's so nice to see you both, and I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, and thank you so much for taking the time and joining me this morning to discuss this important uh, subject for patients. And I think everybody that's in the pituitary space uh, needs to hear this, <laughs> this, this discussion and what patients are going through. So my first question is um, for you both. Let's start, I think, with Lisa. When you think about access to medication and the problems we have, what do you, what, how do you view it from the in- industry point of view? How do you think about those, those issues? And what, is, what are your objectives in terms of getting a patient's... Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 what they need. Yeah, absolutely. JD, and thanks so much for having me. I would just say that, you know, we think about patient access in a couple of different categories. One is certainly cost sharing, which we've seen on the rise, insurance plans shifting much more of the costs, um, not just for prescription drugs, but particularly for prescription drugs over the years, more and more to patients. We see more health plans that have four tiers of prescription drugs, and we also see more coinsurance rather than the flat dollar co-pays that that patients are often used to. And so that's one set of access issues that has really increased dramatically for patients over the last, say, five to 10 years. We've also seen a significant increase in what we refer to as utilization management, 
And those are really hurdles that patients just have to jump through before they can get their medication. So that might be their doctor being required to do a prior authorization, but it could also mean that they have to fail you know, certain medications before they can try the medication that their doctor actually wants them to have. And so it's really the combination of these trends in cost sharing as well as utilization management, which we can dive deeper in today, that have really then put much more pressure on manufacturers uh, like Amrit to step up and, and really offer assistance to patients. And um, we aim to really make our program for patients who are prescribed MyCapsa a very personalized program and one where patients can get all the help they need, both on the cost-sharing side with, with lower, lowering their co-pays, as well as on the access side with helping patients overcome those barriers I described. But I would say, JD, that the trends really mean that patients have to really vocally advocate for themselves. Um, their physicians really need to be in their corner to help them do that. And then there is um, an increasing need for manufacturers to step up and help. And at Amrit, we're really happy to do that and happy to provide a comprehensive program. But I would say that's how the environment is really shaped up uh, in 2022. Yeah, well, thank you. We're definitely going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the MyCapsa program later, later in the discussion, if you can. <laughs> uh, Jill, what, what, tell me, what do you hear from patients in, in relation to, uh, to what Lisa was talking about? You talk to patients about this, I guess, every day. I do. I talk to patients on a daily basis about the hurdles that they're having to jump through regarding access to medications, um, co-pays, you know, the, the issues that they're having regarding um, their health insurance, that really wasn't an issue even five years ago for patients. Um, you know, uh, patients that have Medicare, you know, we, um, if they can't get the support throughout the individual provider, you know, the patient assistance um, systems throughout the individual provider. We try to um, direct patients to uh, oh, foundations like the PAN Foundation or HealthWell mm -hmm. to help those patients with their out-of-pockets um, that they see within Medicare. Because literally, we see patients that um, can't afford you know, the treatment of the disease of acromegaly because of the, the high cost of out-of-pocket. Yeah. And, and I'm so thankful for programs like that that do exist. But, you know, we really tr have to try to help every single patient out there mm -hmm. and try to find those that are falling through the cracks in order to help them too. Yeah. So it, the solution seems more of a systemic issue, uh, this, the way the system works. And so if the question for advocacy groups and for us is when we advocate, where do we concentrate to make the highest impact? So for, for, for patients, this, the system, I guess it's set up of, and correct me if I missed anything, but insurance companies, uh, the, P, the PBMs, which is the pharmacy uh, benefit managers, which is there's a lot of talk and discussion about that, as you as you well know, but particularly when it comes to the cost issues that they uh, gener generate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
obviously the specialty pharmacies, government regulators, healthcare providers, and then pharma, and then us, you know, the advocates. So this is a group that uh, I think everybody's interested in uh, f making the system better. So the, my question to you is, where do you think, from your experience, the, the, the impact or the pressure has to be? Who, who, need, who, makes, who would generate the most uh, change, I guess? It's this insurance. You know, I, my, my sense is that probably the insurance companies is where most of the issues in terms of th this, what you were uh, uh, talking about, Lisa, the access and the things that the, the loops that, patient has to, uh, that a patient has to jump through. I can tell you that we experience things here in the U.S. that they don't experience overseas. That's true. Because they um, have their government supported um, health, um, in basically health insurance. And, and we're here so often, we have insurance companies that are dictating how, you know, um, what medications, even though a doctor has prescribed a certain medication, as Lisa said, um, often they want step therapy rather than going to what is known, proven, and what works because there might be something cheaper. Um, I can tell you that over the years, because of all of the, let's say, injustices that I've seen, I've also gone into some public policy work just because mm -hmm. I found it to be so wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, um, here in the state of Oklahoma where I, I'm at, um, you know, we've tried to have step therapy banned. If, if a doctor prescribes a medication and it is proven and effective, you know, why should an insurance company be able to say, no, you can't, ha you can't have this. You have to try this other, you know, th where the efficacy is lower um, before you get put on what you really truly need to need in order to try to live a more productive life. Well, partic um, yeah, I was going to answer that, particularly with that, where, when that comes from a specialized center that has yeah. tremendous amount of experience in these medications, and they have to, they're forced to keep, you know, uh, two or three people <laughs> in their offices dealing with insurance companies. Just imagine that what that does to costs. I, I mean, is, the whole thing is just... The pre-authorization uh, <laughs> process is, is, is horrible whenever dealing with these. Um, you know, often patients see delays. And I, t I personally tell patients, they want you to give up, <laughs> quite yeah. honestly. Yeah. Every day that they can stall, it saves them money because they're not having to cover your condition properly. And I, and I hate to be so negative towards insurance companies because I know that, that at the end of the day, they're supposed to be there to help us. Yeah. But they're also a business. And the, the bottom line is, um, unfortunately for acromegaly patients, it costs money in order um, for us to maintain our health. Yeah. And so. Yeah. And I would just, just to build on what Jill is saying about prior authorization in particular, 
The American Medical Association has actually done a lot of work on this because their members as physicians, all, all types of physicians, really battle every day. with. We hear it all the time. time. Yes. Yeah, how much time it takes. And they recently did a survey of their members and it was reported back that about 93% of the time prior authorizations are resulting in delays in care for patients. And about a quarter of the time, those issues are actually leading patients to abandon treatment. Mm -hmm. And that could be medical care that is required or it could be drug treatment. But just to say a quarter of the time is significant in terms of the, um, the number of times that a doctor prescribes something and ultimately because of that prior authorization process, the patient just abandons medical treatment that their doctor has indicated that they should have. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds sometimes I think like just extra paperwork, but really the public health consequences mm -hmm. that are coming from burdens like prior authorization are, are pretty significant. So it, just to say, JD, on your last point, you know, maybe to talk a bit about some of the positive movement um, that has happened in public policy yes. over the past few years. Yeah. I do think that there are some trends in the right uh, direction. And one is that, as Jill referenced, both patient advocates and providers are pushing back against step therapy. Mm -hmm. And so Definitely. in a number of states, probably 20 to 25 states now, there are laws that have passed that limit, they don't ban, but they limit the ways in which step therapy can be utilized by health insurers. And, and I think that's a really positive development, mm -hmm. just putting common sense regulations around this practice of step therapy. And then um, as part of the President's Inflation Reduction Act, there were major changes made to the Medicare benefit design. Now yes. those changes those changes won't go into effect until 2025 in the Medicare Part D benefit. So that's a few years from now. It takes a long time to implement a new benefit design, but you know that will limit patient out-of-pocket costs in Medicare to $2,000 a year. Um, and while $2,000 is still a lot of money, that is significantly better than what most Medicare patients face today. So. There, are, there have been some positive steps in the right direction on the public policy front in particular. and um, But there, I think, JD, will always be this tension between insurers who look at things on a population basis, right. right? Total costs and, you know, they're looking at big numbers versus a physician and a patient who are who care about their own individual health circumstances. Yeah. And the provider understands those patients' unique needs Whereas, again, the insurers are looking at these big cohorts of the population. I just think that tension will always exist. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, particularly with now with specialized or individualized medicine that is that is, you know, becoming so so prevalent in, in many ways where, where doctors know exactly the type of medication that the, the patient has because there's been so much research. But I agree with the costs in terms of you know, with you, with a rare disease, everything becomes exacerbated. So you're not looking at huge numbers, then these issues become a lot more real for people. I know that for certain Medicare uh, co-pays, for certain medications, you know, you, patients are looking at seven, $800 co-pays just for 
their you know to get their 30 day supply of medication so it's just it's totally out of whack in terms of uh, you know what 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 people in Medicare can afford uh, I mean I think it's something that is so needed it's too bad we have to wait till, t till 2025 you know one of the things that I was just discussing with someone earlier today was the fact that you know my acromegaly medication actually as long as I'm in control of the disease, I don't need all these other medication. I don't need, you know, pain medication every day. That's I true. Mean, it literally, um, by, by me maintaining my health, I don't need, you know, to, to maintain all, you know, to manage all the symptoms because I'm not experiencing them. And that makes a huge difference. And, and in my opinion, you know, by um, managing this disease properly, I go to the doctor less. You know, I'm still seen like I'm supposed to, but I'm not having to go to urgent care <laughs> every other week. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, that whole burden is taken off from society. And because I'm managing myself properly, you know, I'm able to give back to society where, you know, if... if um, these medications didn't exist, there is no doubt in my mind that um, I would be in such a debilitated state, I couldn't work like I do. Yeah, yeah that's a great point, Jill. I mean, there is really uh, such a cost offset benefit that comes from patients getting on their medication, getting on a medication that works for them, and then staying on it, right? And when you bring barriers in from an insurance perspective, whether that's get first getting on the medication or whether it's cost issues that might cause disruption in care, it's not just disruptive to the patient. There are associated costs, whether that's doctor's visits or other wraparound medications that that patient's gonna require. And acromegaly in particular is a disease that affects working adults, you know, generally speaking. and so. There's a huge productivity loss um, for those patients who are, aren't able to go to work because of the amount of pain that they're in and, and aren't being productive. So I think it's a great point, and I think we often fail to recognize the benefit, the cost benefit that comes with quickly getting on a treatment that works for you and then staying on that treatment. One of the things that we hear a lot is the, the to add a little bit of what you're saying, Lisa, is the the stress factor that that uh, for for people you know, with pituitary disease is so critical to their disease. Um, um, uh, uh, in terms of when they have to deal with with these medications, what do you do you have specifically here about you know mental and emotional health issues related to their access to medication? I know, Jill, you probably have heard this, but we hear quite a bit of it. I'm, I'm not sure uh, if you do or not. It'd be interesting to get your perspective. Well, I, I do know that, especially in a condition like acromegaly, you know, high cortisol is not a good thing. No. And patients, I hear on a daily basis, you know, it is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. And um, as Lisa said previously, so often patients give up 
rather than moving forward just because they feel like they can't deal with anything else on that plate. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, with, with acromegaly, because it is a pituitary condition, you have to think about so many things that you don't normally think about. You have to think about, okay, in order to, to lead a good life, you know, you have to keep your stress levels um, normal because you don't want your cortisol levels to raise because it, it raises your blood sugars. You know, we don't process glucose properly. You need to get regular sleep like you're supposed to. Literally, it is a full-time job just taking care of yourself <laughs> yeah. properly. Yeah. Yes. As, as I'm sure you, you well know, <laughs> J.D. And, and um, so often it's, you know, putting the extra pressure that the insurance companies do on patients. It is just too much. Yeah, yeah that's, what I, that's why I'm, I'm mentioning it. I think, I, think it's, it's, uh, I think it's critical that that piece gets fixed. Uh, Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit about... Um, specifically what you do for patients uh, that go on my capsa because i think it's a really good case study about how you guys have have uh, um, uh, approached that issue and uh, and are, are working yeah. with it well really i mean our job honestly is to take the stress that jill just described and take it away from patients and maybe just to build on what she was just describing. I mean, we're coming up to a time of the year when it's a it's an interesting time, right? Because patients are enrolling in probably a new insurance plan. Might be their same plan, um, but the benef their benefits might have changed in their same plan, or they might have changed jobs or have circumstances where they've actually changed health plans. And so. This time of year can be a very stressful time of year mm -hmm. for patients. They're going to have to meet their new deductibles. And um, and again, their benefits may have changed. And so for our MyCAPSA patients in particular, we try to make that process as smooth as possible. This is top of mind for me because right now we're in the process of making sure any patient who is in our current MyCAPSA program gets their benefits re-verified and essentially takes all of that stress away from patients as we enter the new year. They know what their coverage is. We've verified everything um, and they understand what their coverage will look like and how we can help them in the coming year. But in general, JD, really our approach is to create this comprehensive and personalized experience. So you know, we know that for acromegaly patients, they're dealing with fatigue, they're dealing with pain, they're dealing with all of these symptoms that Jill described. And so we're trying to take that anxiety down. And there are a number of components of the program. Um, we can have $0 copay for eligible patients who have commercial insurance. We can get them started on their medication while insurance is actually working through that prior authorization so that they don't have to wait for that can be for that to be completed in order to actually get started and we can just also guide them as they start therapy what should they expect what are potential side effects how do you um, you know, make sure that you're aware of what you might experience as you begin a new medication. So it's really 
Um, you know, there's a clinical element mm -hmm. to how we help patients and an education element, but there are also those cost and reimbursement and things that we do our best just to take care of so that it comes off of the patient's plate. Yeah. And I know that your website, uh, your new face, fa uh, patient-facing website, has a lot of information on that. So we'll put a link on the podcast uh, article so pe if whoever is on my CAPSA can and needs some more information on what you do and uh, don't have Wonderful. it, they can, uh, they can uh, reach you that way. Uh, and I'm assuming yes, that they can the talk to people place. and there's people standing by to answer questions and all of that. Yeah, yeah, and that's the that's the best place to go is that my CAPSA website that's really designed for patients, with, which has even more details about the yeah. program and than what I described. I should mention we also have a link on to that on on Pituitary World News. So if you go to the front page, you you'll see it there. Uh, let me uh, let me switch a little bit and ask you, Jill, um, what do patients need? What do you tell patients they need to know as they you know, when you give them advice, or how, you know, let's say a newly diagnosed acromegaly patient that comes to you and says, oh, God, this is a mess. Oh, goodness. What do I do? So, so the first thing <laughs> that, I, that I yeah. tell an acromegaly patient that is newly diagnosed is to make sure that they have a good care team. And that isn't just a standard endocrinologist. They truly need a pituitary specialist to help manage this condition properly, typically. Typically, the more patients that a physician sees with this um, disease, they, they gain a better understanding of how to manage it properly. Mm -hmm. And typically, we see those patients that go to these centers of excellence, let's say. Um, they typically have a better quality of life. Also, the surgeon that they see, you know, they may even have to travel out of network in order to see such a surgeon. Sure. Because a surgeon um, can literally, um, th th their amount of skill can, can change a patient's life. You know, they don't, you don't want a doctor that gets in and, and damages the gland, sure. but you want a doctor that can get in and remove the tumor successfully. And unfortunately, that gland is so sensitive, it's very easy to damage. In, yeah. in that process and you know um there are maybe a, a dozen surgeons from around the country that i re recommend you know we have a rule of thumb you know and that is that the surgeon needs to have done at least 500 of these surgeries of this type yeah and and have a good surgical record which means low complications and, and a high surgical remission rate. They need to do at least 50 per year in order to keep up their skill set. Um, yeah. You know, these things literally, um, it, it's proven that if you go to a surgeon with this, um, you know, high experience rate and, and that typically a patient does do better. Yeah. You know, I would say that um, a, a patient really can't um, depend on their insurance to get them to the correct surgeon in order to treat this. Yeah. I can say I myself had to go out of network in order to see um, a, a, a surgeon. Um, the first surgeon that I was recommended to 
told me, well, I've done one of these before. And thank yeah. God, <laughs> um, you know, I didn't use that surgeon. Um, I ended yeah. up seeing someone with, with a lot of experience because every single day I see patients that don't go to well-experienced surgeons and, and um, they literally um, suffer the rest of their lives yeah. um, with hypopituitarism and, and conditions because of it. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering from the, I'm sorry, Lisa, you wanted, you wanted to say something? No, I was just going to say, I think there's an important theme in what Jill just said, which goes beyond the specific example she was using. She's using the example of a surgeon, but really the message that Jill's giving to patients is don't let your insurance company decide what kind of care you're going to get, which really goes back to the point I was making at the beginning about really we we've now we now have a system where it's on patients to to often do the research and know what their options are and then advocate with their insurance company um, for those options which seems very unfair to do to people who are sick and and battling a rare disease but it is the reality and so i just wanted to pull out that theme jd because i, I do think it's an important it's a really really important point which is don't don't let your insurance company sort of control what care you have access to you can advocate you can fight there are often multiple ways that you can get access to something um, if you're if you're willing to do that hard work yeah. and so I just wanted to highlight well that. I, I also want to point out for those patients especially post-surgery that that aren't in remission that are on medications whenever you're going to pick out an insurance company you know go to their formularies um, you know because it's it's much easier to uh, choose an insurance company that has a medication on their formulary yes. before than to have to fight them fight with them over it. Um, because as we discussed previously, insurance companies love denials. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, to not have to fight with a company. For instance, in order to stay on my current medication, I had to change my insurance company whenever open enrollment um, came up. Um, but I did it and I'm, you know, I'm thankful that I've been able to, to stay on the medication that works for me. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, also there's a big vast difference in specialty pharmacies and the way they they do things. Some of them seem to be a lot smoother than others. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, on specialty farm pharmacies. Uh, I, I think a lot of it has to do with insurance companies picking the, the specialty pharmacy that they work with. Well, and I think, you know, in, in recent years, um, insurance companies have actually bought several of the specialty pharmacies. And PBMs, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and so, <laughs> I mean, it, it really, it, it boggles my mind that they're allowed to do this because in my opinion, it would be a conflict of interest. Yeah. Um, because literally every day that, this spe that a specialty company um, is able to delay, it saves their parent company money. Yeah, at least but, an antitrust. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, we we have a few minutes left in our discussion, and I just want to uh, um, ask you: Is there anything that we didn't discuss that you would like to to share in terms of this access issue? 
and and then I'll, I'll what like what keeps you up at night uh, on this if, if anything does uh. oh lots keeps me up <laughs> at night about this I, you know i would just say that if the current trends that we've seen over the last five or so years continue um it's it's going to be harder and harder <clears throat> for patients to get their medicate their specialty medications and i think that that is really concerning mm -hmm. and so you know certainly being a part of advocacy groups in order to build your own awareness and knowledge and know how to fight for yourself is is really important and also making your physician your partner in in that effort i think is really really important and so unfortunately jd i would say i don't see the trends heading in a positive direction i see only a continuing deepening of the system that we have and the incentives that exist in the system that we have um, but i do believe in the power of patience and the power of the patient voice and what can be achieved when patients fight for themselves. And so mm -hmm. I would say that's my advice for anyone listening is, you know, make your physician your partner in getting access to what you and he or she think are best for you because that will position you for long-term success. Yeah. Jill, any thoughts on that? So one of the most disturbing things that I have seen throughout the years is the copay accumulators. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are patients that have depended on help from these programs for years. And I can tell you, it was either last year or the year before, I had a patient that contacted me that sent me a letter, and it was in December, and she said, am I reading this properly, that my insurance says that they'll take the money from the pharmaceutical company, but none of it will apply towards my deductible? Okay, and, yeah, I was going to ask you to explain uh, 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 copay accumulators just for the people that don't know so what they are. So copay accumulators um, is where um, insurance companies will, and specialty pharmacies, especially those that are tied to insurance companies because they know who is actually paying the bill, will take the funds from the copay assistance programs with, pharmaceutical companies, but none of it will apply towards the deductible or out-of-pocket limits for the patients. It's essentially double-dipping is, mm -hmm. is what we call it. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a patient contact me, had just gotten this letter. It was probably the middle of December, and, and she, was, she, she had explained, you know, I'd never gone for disability. Um, I'm, I stay at home, and my husband supports me but I can't even, uh, I won't even be able to afford to go to the doctor now because, you know, that was helping with, with um, and she literally had an anxiety attack yeah. and ended up in the hospital that day hmm. over the stress of, you know, what this insurance company was starting to push on the patients. And that's all part of trying to make patients pay more rather than the insurance companies. And, and, you know, quite honestly, most of us have paid all of our lives into insurance companies. And isn't that what insurance companies are supposed to be there for? To yeah. protect us yeah, definitely. when we need them. And, and for them to be pushing more and more onto the patient 
I just think is is despicable. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly... Especially when we see these these CEOs of these companies getting million dollar bonuses, you know, at the end of the year because of how much money they saved. And it, it's really hard to be a rare patient, um, you know, but we have proven that if we care for ourselves properly, we can still be productive people in society. And so they need to help us be those productive yeah. beings. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, Lisa, you, you also uh, uh, mentioned this. It's, uh, you know, the, the system is getting worse. And uh, we have to think about these issues from a systemic standpoint in the advocacy efforts to see where we can um, be most of most help, you know, for everybody that's involved in these diseases. So. Um, uh, anyway, one more last question then. Um, what, what about get, get fixing the system? Is there any, have you any thought about what, you know, what would it take to, to fix the problems? Um, does it, does it, does it mean we get everybody together and around the table and say, where's, where are the issues? Or is this a political issue that has almost no no solution unless lobbying changes or uh, insurance companies are not as powerful. Uh, uh, the AMA gets strong. I don't know. You know, all these things that we think about constantly. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that or that you want to share? Well, having spent most of my career lobbying and doing public policy and working with government, I would say that improvements, I, I think it will always be incremental improvement. Yeah. Um, and that actually you can achieve a lot for patients through incremental improvement. Some of those I described earlier, yeah. you know, I have been uh, personally working on Medicare benefit redesign that would help patients for the last, you know, like eight years or nine years. And it feels like a really long time, but it, it did get done. And, and that's a really big improvement. Yeah, and Probably these are small better. steps that, that, that yeah, take a while sort of, that exactly. lead to a and, big change. The, Right, but they, yeah, exactly. They they do add up. We didn't get here overnight no. in terms of step therapy and prior authorization and vertical integration of PBMs and pharmacies and health plans. We didn't get here overnight. And I'm a believer we're not going to unwind all of that overnight. Maybe it's the practical person in me. I just don't think there's one big solution that's going to sort of... Uh, but what I think is you have to try to incrementally make public policy improvements that target better access for patients. I think that's really important. And ultimately, in order to change the systems, you have to change the incentives, right? Mm -hmm. That is the incentives are what's driving the way the system works today. <laughs> yeah. And in order to make improvement, changing those fundamental incentives will have to change. So there's a lot more to say there, but I think that's probably the, the best place to leave it from my perspective. Yeah, yeah thank you. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. It doesn't happen overnight, although if you, ask, if you ask the patient perspective, we'll tell you, okay, well, just let's blow it up and let's fix it, right? <laughs> It doesn't work that Easier way. Easier said yeah. than done, my friend. <laughs> you know, my, my biggest fear is that, you know, they would 
someone would would do away with our system and not have something else in place. Well, that's yeah. sure, and we and and the trend of going. You know, getting worse. I think you're absolutely right, both of you. It's not getting better, so we need to reverse that first. So right. all these incremental things. I think the Medicare thing is a huge change. And, you know, that's going to help a lot of people. So, well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time. This is, I think, it's been a wonderful discussion, and I, I think it's going to be very uh, uh, informational for people that listen to it. And I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, J.D. Again, a big thank you to Lisa Nelson and Jill Sisko for their time and support to patients and the work they do. And a quick reminder that Pituitary World News is a charitable, non-profit organization supported by industry and foundations and listeners like you. So if you'd like to help us continue to do our work, please go to pituitarywellnews.org and click the donate button. Thank you. And thank you for listening. <laughs>